Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that isn't fooled by your ducks returning to your pond, Karen. (laughs) Today we have Laura, Helen, and Zoe. And today we're talking about COVID-19 again, but we are specifically talking about two things. Um, one, the shit that's going on, like, wow, nature is healing because of us doing these individual changes, um, and why that's only like essentially not true, or if we need to be very real about it, like partially true. And two, the absolute garbage that the U.S. government backed by corporate lobbyists. I want to be clear at this point, that is redundant. We always have to remember that, but the government is always influenced by corporate interests but they're passing a bunch of shit that's like deregulating for the environment which is what they do you know naomi klein writes a lot about this in her book the shock doctrine when she specifically looks at at that time she was looking at um hurricane katrina and uh what the bush administration did while the crisis of hurricane katrina was happening um and she kind of tied it to to historical stuff but you know we'll get into what's happening this time but it should be known in general that this is this is not a new thing that the u.s government is doing yeah i mean by now you may have heard stories concerning covid19 and climate change suggesting that the virus has been good for our planet um there was that tweet that went viral showing the venice canals clearing up since people are not around to pollute them during quarantine uh and then you know the day later there was another viral tweet that was more the vibes of coronavirus is the earth's vaccine and we are the virus um which i know kellen's going to get into like the eco-fascist roots of that um An article by UN News put it well when it stated that positive impacts on the world are temporary, particularly in light of the economic and human impact the virus is having on the world. Scripps Institute of Oceanography also noted for carbon dioxide levels to truly be impacted, fossil fuel use would have to decline by about 10% around the world for a year. And that's just to have CO2 be impacted. Um... And that's not to say that that would be enough for where we're at, but just so it would need to be a decrease of fossil fuel use by 10% for a year. Um, And we just like, I just want to be clear that while we'll get into it more, but go ahead, Kel, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, but don't, don't apologize. Uh, I, yeah, I think that Laura, what you're talking about kind of brings up two separate talking points that are coming out of this, um, the virus with regards to the environment. The first one, obviously, we've all seen the posts that Laura was talking about, about how like nature is healing and we are the virus because like a family of fucking swans is now swimming around in Venice or whatever. (laughs) Um, I'm sure that everybody who listens to this podcast is aware that that kind of thinking is a doorway to eco-fascism. If humans are the virus, the logic goes, then the virus has to be cold. And the next question is, what humans do we get rid of to cull the virus? boom, suddenly you're in fascism territory. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. So, like, it's really not that many steps to be like, okay, this is literally genocidal and (laughs) logic. Right. Try again. Um, 
so for eco-socialists or like really like all socialists because if you're not an eco-socialist you're probably not actually a socialist at this point uh what everybody should be countering that with is the idea that like actually if we're going to call something a virus it's capitalism i mean something other than the virus the Mm -hmm. virus right uh the virus is also the virus yeah Yeah. (laughs) we have enough food and water and space for all humans to live comfortably and sustainably the problem is about the distribution of resources, the consumerist model, the domination of the global north over the global south, the exploitative way that resource extraction occurs. Basically, all of that is capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my um, one of my dearest friends is just finished her master's in public health. And so I've been like talking to her about this stuff a lot. Um, and her conclusion also is that capitalism is the virus. So public health professionals agree. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> what more do you want? Um, and then I think the second thing that sort of, Laura, you're getting at is that COVID-19, I think, has also given us an opportunity as leftists to counter another environmental lie. And this mm-hmm. one comes from liberals rather than the right, mm-hmm. which is that um, changes in individual consumption are enough to avert climate catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um the conditions of the pandemic have effectively sort of created a kind of lab experiment that you could not ethically do outside of these, these, this situation, which is, you know, to answer the question, what would happen if on an individual level, people stopped travel and consumption for all but the most necessary reasons? Like what would emissions look like under those circumstances? Um, And scientists have been able to answer that question thanks to COVID, uh, the answer is that emissions did drop considerably over the last couple of months. Um, Some very congested cities have seen better air quality while they were shut down. So like, to be clear, we're definitely not saying that like getting cars off the road, for example, is not important and worthwhile and like, doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, there is a caveat. So like over the last couple of months, According to one study I read, um, emissions were down by about 17% over the previous year, uh, which sounds like a lot, but you have to keep in mind that stuff is like reopening and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And scientists are estimating, sorry for all the numbers I'm about to spit out, guys, but here we go. Scientists are estimating- sorry, Kellen. I don't know. This feels like it merits an apology. Um, (laughs) Okay, we'll reassess after. So scientists are estimating we're going to be down by somewhere between 4.4 and 8% total this year. Um, The problem is, remember that, that max they expect 8% Mm -hmm. from this COVID situation. The problem is, and Laura kind of, I think, hinted at this as well, that we, according to the UN, uh, we have to reduce our emissions by 7.6% every year between now and 2030 to keep temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees celsius right so that's that is like best case scenario we barely make what we're supposed to be doing every fucking year but and we're doing it by accident right and this it may not even happen so anyway what this means is that even with this massive halt in global carbon output from individuals we still might not even make the goal for this year Um, And it's also worth noting that like in times of economic crisis, it's really common to see year year long dips in carbon dioxide emissions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Global emissions fell by about again numbers, sorry, 1.4% in 2009 with the financial crisis. But then the next year in 2010 bounced up to grow more than 5%, which is a way higher rate of growth than average. Mm -hmm. Again, sorry for all the numbers. 
But this means that we can't discount the fact that when all of this is over, over in quotation marks, things are not just going to like go back to normal, but also potentially temporarily get worse as yeah. everybody's like, finally, I can go visit grandma or like whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, we all, I think probably at this point heard the statistic that like just a hundred companies are responsible for more than 70% of global emissions. And if anything, this is showing us that that's where we need to target our efforts. We also should be doing things like demanding clean energy and mass transit, like rather than trying to guilt people into driving less, it does make a difference. We should give people better options, but we should also be preventing these massive corporations from polluting the environment. And when you do both of those things, you have a real solution on your hands. Mm. Wow. Yeah, there's there's so much there, too. Um, so I, I was an environmental student in undergrad. Like, that's what I studied. Um, and one of the main things that you learn is how long term everything is and we as humans like you know we had a whole class on talking about what they call 21st century problems right like global poverty is a 21st century problem like there's these problems that are so multi-layered but also very difficult for the human brain to understand in the sense that it's we don't have really the faculties to understand the magnanimity of the global climate crisis on a regular basis. So there's like, so people are kind of latching onto these like increases in like a healing feeling, right? Uh, that Callum's talking about. So yeah, like there, there are these visible positive impacts, whether improved air quality or reduced greenhouse gas emissions. And, but they are, again, only temporary because they come on the back of tragic economic slowdown and human distress. Like, it's it's coming because people are forced into this, right? Uh, the government would never choose to have us behaving this way. The pandemic has and will also result in an increase in the amounts of medical and hazardous waste generated, like, I think that that's it. Like, everyone was obsessed with, and which I get, like, obsessed with plastic bags, and a lot of places outlawed them. But the increase in the amount of medical and hazardous waste generated because our government doesn't provide, like, actual good hazardous gear. It's all these, like, corporate, uh, like, things that hospitals have to buy on their own. And so they're going to buy the cheapest stuff, which is these, like, single use things. That's really no one's model of environmental response. Um, only long-term systemic shifts will change the trajectory of CO2 levels in the atmosphere. So in the aftermath of the crisis, when economic stimulus packages composed of infrastructure are designed, there is a real opportunity, like Kellen was saying, to meet the demand with green packages of renewable energy investments, smart buildings, free green public transport, etc. But we know for sure that the United States government will never prioritize sustainability over profit. Um, I know we want to talk about the U.S. specifically soon, but I also wanted to explain something more regarding this with like kind of on a science end of regarding the disease itself. 
Part of the challenge ahead is understanding where such diseases come from because the health of our planet plays an important role of the spread of what's called zoonotic diseases, a.k.a. disease originating from pathogens that transfer from animals to humans. As we continue to encroach on fragile ecological systems, we bring humans into more contact with wildlife, which exacerbates the issue. Also, around 75% of new and infectious diseases are zoonotic, and in fact, about 1 billion cases of illness and millions of deaths occur every year from these diseases. So, for people who are like, nature is healing, it's like, literally how unhealthy our planet is, is part of why this pandemic is so intense. Um, So yeah, as we continue our relentless move into natural habitats, contact between humans and reservoir hosts increases, whether a result of urbanization, habitat loss and fragmentation, or live animal markets, meaning like um, there's quite a huge illegal sales trade of live animals, like um, specialty exotic animals. According to IPBES, which is the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, we have seen one... What? It's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have seen 100 million hectares of agricultural expansion in the tropics between 1980 and 2000, roughly equal to the size of France and Germany combined. So an important pillar of our post-COVID recovery plan must be to arrive at an ambitious, measurable, and inclusive framework because keeping nature rich, diverse, and flourishing is part and parcel of our life's support system. Even more important when you consider that between 20 and 50% of pharmaceutical products are derived from genetic resources, aka plant genetic materials of actual value, like Yes, we can get into why big pharma is messed up on a whole level, but we also need medicine. And a lot of those medicines, like the phytochemical properties, come from plants. Um, And we are going to keep getting more and more sick and not going to be able to make the medicines that we need to stay healthy if we keep moving forward in the world like business as usual. And that goes into another thing I wanted to talk about, um, which is really being affected, which is the agriculture um, industry and specifically um like meat farming so um it's really like there's a lot of positive and negative to this um so i guess starting with the negatives i mean basically what's happening is a lot of meat processing meat packing factories um have to shut down because they became hotspots for COVID spread, which is for a few reasons. One is that the workers are packed in really close together in those factories. Um, also, they keep the temperatures low for the meat, which increase lower temperatures lead to higher um, survival rate for the virus cells. And um, also they have like these air ventilation systems to keep the meat fresh, which actually like blow air around. And so that blows around like particles in the air, including the virus. Um, So that's really affected the distribution of meat, which um, has, I mean, one, it's really bad for jobs. And a lot of people who work in the agricultural industry are um, migrants and, you know, it's like very low income a lot of the time. Um, 
And also it's wasting a ton of meat because they're not able to distribute it. So the flip side to that is that there's been a lot of increases in um, production and purchase of meat alternatives, which like in the long run would be better. Um, so the sales are up like 264%. That was as of May 2nd um, over the past nine weeks of like all kinds of um, like vegetarian and vegan meat alternatives. Um, yeah, also like the Impossible brand, like Impossible Burgers noted that they've had an 18 fold increase in purchase since the beginning of the year. However, I mean, that can't be totally correlated statistically with COVID as I'm currently taking a statistics class, um, brag, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's like, of course, other variables, one being that like vegetarian and like vegan diets have been increasing in popularity in recent years anyway. So there's already been like slow increase, but this has caused, um, more of a spike in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I do want to bring in globalization really quick to that specific dynamic because, well, there's there's a few things. Factory farms are a nightmare, and meatpacking yeah. in the United States is a nightmare. Um, it's been that way, you know, like when we think of, uh, what is the one book that, is it called Animal Farm? Are you thinking of The Jungle? I feel like there's yes. so many. Yes, I'm thinking of the jungle. By what? Who, yeah, that's about meatpacking. Yeah, Animal who's the Farm author? Is just about communist animals. Right. Upton Sinclair. Thank you. So the Upton Sinclair, like you know, we've known this for a while. Upton Sinclair did the jungle, which was like, if you haven't read it, it's honestly like kind of an intense but good read. Um, thank you, Kellen, for that. Um, and I, I just want to say that like. It's, it's so complicated because things like tofu uh, and things like quinoa and things like lentils are primarily harvested for the United States in Latin American countries, soybean uh, products and that. I mean, there are some stuff that comes from the U.S. itself, but there's a lot that comes from Mexico and other Latin American countries. And the labor conditions um, in those are so bad. <laughs> so it's like, mm-hmm. it's it's so complicated, right? Like, I think we just... Yeah, need it look- is really complicated. It's And what you were saying is obviously completely true. Like, yes, it's good to, like, not be a carnivore. I think, like, there is an argument for local meat consumption and trying to find... But also there's economic stuff, right? Like, you don't oh, want... Yeah, I mean, I think, like... There would be a much, much less of a moral issue with eating meat if we had a much different yeah, system regarding exactly. like how that meat is created. Like right. that's a huge part of the problem, which is capitalism. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like all again, all these problems come down to capitalism. So like, again, food in particular, I think, is a sensitive issue for people because of like, you know, it's about bodies. First of all, you might need specific types of protein for your body. You also might be in an economic situation where you can only do certain things. So like know that when we say this, it's just as like getting information out there and not like, like I think, yeah. I think veg- well, also, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just going to say like the production of meat in the U.S. also environmentally takes a lot more resources yes. because yes. of like 
the way all of that's done, which like we don't have to get into. I'm sure a lot of people know about this. But yeah, so it's also linked to that. It's not like right. a personal moral judgment about what you eat. Exactly. Like in the United States, like water, fresh water usage for production is like insane. It's it's so insane. insane. But anyway, to recap, corporations are the issue. Uh, the military is the issue. Um you know, uh, Kellen said that corporations are 30% of emissions. The U.S. military 70, is like, or I'm sorry, 70%. 70%. Sorry, you said 70%. I did the inverse because of what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, but like part of that, like, yes, corporations are tied into our military complex. But like if we were to think of U.S. military, U.S. military adds like 25% of global emissions, just the U.S. Mm-hmm. military. And yes, that is linked into like some of that percentage, I'm sure, is related to corporate interests. But um, what, like Kellen was saying, but some of it like we just need to know how much the U.S. is like really just kind of the center of the climate change crisis because of something that we're going to get into a little bit later, which is like the orientalization of this disease in our lack of response and also how that plays into our perspective on climate change. But yeah, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of rhetoric going around where people point to this time period and say how good things can be for nature with the individual changes. But nature is declining at a rapid rate still. And we just want our listeners to know that. <laughs> So I think we're going to move into the ways that the U.S. government is undermining the environment during this pandemic. <laughs> um, so there's been two rollbacks on emissions. I guess, like, if people aren't aware, I just want to say really quickly that, like, the only way that corporations, like, are actually green is with governmental enforcement. So in the... Um, Lyndon B. Johnson and Nixon administrations, things like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Drinking Water Act, the Clean Air Act were passed with like only because of massive uh, human uprising. It was like in the same era as a lot of other civil disobedience acts. But those regulations have been slowly stripped away since they were put into place. Um, So... These are just some more rollbacks of that variety. So at the end of March, this administration finalized a plan to scale back targets for automobile emissions from 5% per year to 1.5%, a change that the EPA, or Environmental Protection Agency, our federal governing body of the environment, acknowledges could result in an extra 867 million tons of carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere by vehicles sold over the next decade. I'm just going to read that one again, just like the number. So they changed the reductions from 5% per year to 1.5% per year, and it will result in an or can result in an extra 867 million tons of carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere over the next decade. <sighs> That's insane. I know. So it's just like when people are like, it's healing. I'm like, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> Um, In mid-April, the EPA released another rule targeting Obama-era mercury emission standards for power plant. Mercury is like an extremely toxic um, element. 
Um, although the agency, the EPA, left the original regulatory limits in place, it adjusted how the rules, cost, and benefits are calculated, weakening their economic justification. So essentially, they're weakening the restrictions on mercury emissions, a known toxin to us and the environment. So another thing that's happening that's related to sort of related to regulations is that um, uh, governments and companies are looking at pushing ahead with projects that would normally get a lot of resistance. Um, so I am probably not alone in having looked at America's massively fucked up response to COVID-19 and thinking like, wow, it would be great to be not here. Um, and if that is a thought that you've had and you've considered Canada as a place to run away to, I am here to remind you that Canada is also a very fucked up place, although they do have universal health care. Point to Canada on that one. Yes. But Justin Trudeau has a cute butt. Ew. Do you guys yeah, we... remember that? Do you remember when everyone was sharing pictures of his butt? No. I blocked oh. it out. <laughs> it was a thing. My bet. I mean, I believe it. Everyone was obsessed with his looks. I fucking can't. I can't. Yeah. There was like Just, a specific thing of like liberal feminists being like his butt. So anyway, yes. go on. <laughs> Moral of the story, you can be blackface president and people will still love you if you have a cute butt, I guess. Remember blackface president? Mm -hmm. Justin Trudeau or prime minister, I guess. Uh, yeah, good times. I mean, terrible times, obviously. Jesus Just the fact Christ. that we've totally sort of as a culture forgotten about that is wild to me. Right, 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 right. Just like we forgot, you know, Joe Biden is a rapist, so it's fine. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, well, we haven't forgotten. Just people don't care. Yeah. With that I, one. But they will forget. They did forget after it yeah. happened. And like, I don't know. Yes. True. Yes. Yeah. 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 So in Canada, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> the um, so Alberta, Canada is like the place where a lot of the um, uh, like oil resources mm -hmm. are located in um, the country. So the energy minister of Alberta um, came out and said recently, um, actually, I just have to like read you guys <laughs> this piece from this newspaper because it's actually insane. So this this came from um, a piece in Canada's uh, Globe and Daily Mail newspaper. This is the the section. Uh, yes, here it is. Alberta's energy minister says it's a good time to build a pipeline because public health restrictions limit protests against them. <laughs> Sonia Savage made the comment Friday on a podcast hosted by the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. What is that podcast? It's just a thrilling <laughs> podcast, and we have to assume. Yes. Uh, she was asked about the progress of the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, which is under construction on its route between Edmonton and Vancouver. Now is a great time to be building a pipeline because you can't have protests of more than 15 people, Mrs. Savage said. Let's oh get God. it built. While the interviewer laughed, Miss Savage did not. What the fuck? <laughs> so, again, just to be clear, she was on a fucking oil contractor podcast. And even the person interviewing her was like, ha ha ha, maybe this is too mask off for our audience. Ha ha ha. Um, anyway, this is disaster capitalism at work. Uh, we, we should do a crossover episode with that podcast. It sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the Canadian if, Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. If you're listening. Slide into our DMs. The bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. So we'll get on that. That'll be our follow-up episode, uh, COVID-19 and the environment part two. But yeah, this is disaster capitalism at work. As I said, we already talked a little bit about Naomi Klein. Uh, her work has made it really clear. Like, if you think that every capitalist in the world is not looking at ways to exploit this crisis, mm-hmm. just like Sonia Savage over here, then um, I have some beachfront property in central Alberta I'd like to sell you. Ooh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, just also like, you know, when we had the, the, Keystone XL pipeline that was coming from the Alberta tar sand. So it's all the same right. area of Canada. So this does affect us too because our borders with Canada are so loose. But also, yeah, Canada's a nightmare with that shit. <laughs> and it's like as the Keystone XL pipeline and other pipelines have um, made clear, this is not just an issue of like environmental safety. It's not just an issue of um of like protecting against oil spills it's also so frequently an issue of indigenous rights um and we this is you know this is this i guess could be related to COVID 19 and the environment it's not exactly about governmental regulations but um native communities have been hit incredibly hard Mm -hmm. by the COVID pandemic and obviously are incredibly under-resourced when it comes to healthcare and pretty much everything else too as well um There are a lot of really good efforts at mutual aid that have um, come up in the sort of this crisis situation. I think we can link to some of those actually in the description Mm -hmm. of this episode. I think that would be good Um, because the Navajo Nation has been, um, I know, particularly hard hit. And there are people within the Navajo Nation who have put together some um, drives for the purpose of especially getting... um, supplies to elders, like older members of their community who are really spaced out and uh, far from um, stores and stuff, just to make sure that they don't have to travel too far to get what they need. So we'll link to some of that. But um, as is always the case, whenever, um, you know, something sort of bad happens in America, it frequently happens much worse in uh, indigenous nations within the United States. So um, again, that's exactly what's happening with COVID-19. And unfortunately, with situations like building pipelines, and I, you know, that, what, that tends to be true in Canada as well, that when Canada sneezes, like uh, First Nations within Canada catch cold. Mm. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, like we're looking at situations where people are trying to take advantage of the, of the pandemic in ways that will continue to harm Native communities. Okay, so another way... <laughs> that the United States is really just fucked. Um, There's a planned inaction on particulates, which particulates is like the type, it's it's essentially tiny particles that float in the air, AKA air pollution. (laughs) But the decision on fine particle pollution that the EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler announced in mid-April, is possibly more fucked than some of the other stuff. Um, In that case, the EPA went against the advice of its own staff and many academic scientists, love it, by leaving the current standards in place in spite of evidence that reducing such pollution could save thousands of lives each year. Right. Like the EPA, along with other sectors of the administration, has been staffed at the top by people who are fundamentally at odds with its mission. Um, So the idea that 
Trump people at the Environmental Protection Agency are just ignoring what environmental scientists has to say. Uh, just like classic, yeah. classic, love it. Uh, love to see it. Uh, don't know what else to say, but I mean, it's it's not surprising in some ways that our like response to this pandemic has been so bad because he's stripped the CDC down to mm-hmm. like you know stripped the CDC down to like the absolute bare minimum, and the EPA is being run by jackasses even more so than usual. Oh yeah, well, and just love like it. straight up oil executives, <laughs> right? Like he put Rick Perry as his first. Yeah secretary of energy like just oh my god yeah also just like a lot of state governments like fucking andrew cuomo are still like making budget cuts to healthcare systems and like unemployment and stuff like that like while this is happening right and like Um, partially because they know that people can't do the same like means of protesting like kellen was saying about the thing in canada it's like the government seeing it as like oh well there's not as much that people can really do about it so yeah um in a report issued last september epa staff ch- charged with reviewing the literature cited epidemiological am i saying that right epidemiological which is relating to yeah. the branch of medicine which deals with the incidence distribution and control of diseases um so they were charged with Review the people that were charged with reviewing all that stuff um, would support a decrease in the maximum allowed average level of fine particulate matter, aka air pollution. The regulatory processes that invented that change tipped towards the interests of polluters from the outset with little to no independent scientific oversight. And we aren't really surprised by that. But it's still really fucked because the ongoing coronavirus pandemic has shown to have higher death toll in communities affected by air pollution. So again, this is environmental racism, like like Helen was saying, and environmental classism. It's just like we are more affected and are more likely to have severe COVID symptoms in areas when when we're exposed to these particulates because those particulates cause things like asthma um and there's also just been other rollbacks of standards so the epa has said starting at the end of march that they are temporarily relaxing the enforcement of environmental regulations and fines during the covid19 outbreak The enforcement discretion policy applies retroactively to March 13th with no end date set yet. So what they're saying is like corporations won't be policed. (laughs) Which already doesn't really happen. Right. So it's going to just be happening even less. Um, Yeah. And so the new that new policy specifically follows lobbying from insurance industry. I'm sorry, lobbying from industries, including oil and gas, which told the Trump administration that relaxed regulations will allow them to more efficiently distribute fuel during the outbreak, which is just literally the most absurd thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. But like, it's clear that they're just like making something sound right for like the decisions they're making. Yeah. So I also just wanted to talk about, uh, because um, environmental stuff is a global issue, like we've been focusing on the United States because I think governmentally, like A, that's where we are, and B, like the U.S. is such a nightmare. Um, But one of the reasons why the U.S. is such a nightmare and um, why there has been such a 
Like, there are multiple reasons why there were so many different reactions to how this all went down. Um, And now there's actually a lot of research that is coming out already about um, the specific and and when I'm about to use the word Orientalism, it's in the framework of Edward Said, who discussed like essentially the othering, like the idea of the quote West was only able to exist by othering um, countries. So it's a specific ideology, like separating Western from other. And so in that language, the other is like an orientalization of um, countries. So I just wanted to be clear about that because it's not like even specific to Asia at all. It's like it's just kind of a way that that this is described. Um, But these research, this research that's come out um, is talking about how when China was first having this issue, many countries around the world, Senegal, Malaysia, Vietnam, countries that are much more close in proximity to China, but also with way less resources than the United States, didn't have this, like, invincibility complex. Um, Western countries, and particularly the United States, have this ideal of, like, that happens over there, that doesn't happen here. Um, And so in addition to the complete lack of federal infrastructure thanks to the Red Scare and, like, anything that could be perceived as even related to communism which is any federal structure at all so the united states fails <laughs> at having any federal structure at all so like we didn't have any way to like get people test get people like react in a way that is on a federal level um but other countries like in senegal they they saw what was happening and immediately took precautions and started stocking up on tests and things like that and and they've really been a Um, nation that has shown successes in how you can react to something like this and China like obviously we know China China was the big one that we talked about when we first did the like the quarantine chats and stuff like that um but I think now we see Cuba also had a lot of um yeah no I was just gonna say Cuba also had a lot of um like good advancements with it and was like sending doctors to other countries exactly of course we would never accept help from Cuba or China or <laughs> any of those places. Right, right, exactly. Like there are state state governments that are seeking help from China mm. like on their own because they know the federal government like not even on their own but secretly. Right. Because yeah. the, they were worried about the Trump administration intervening to prevent them from getting masks or ventilators from the Chinese government. Yeah. Love it. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that places like Spain and Italy, where there actually is much more federal infrastructure, they both have universal health care. In those places, it still was really bad. And, and, you know, people were kind of asking the question, well, why? Um, And I really think that this cultural mindset of the West – you know, the, the things that tie us to Europe, essentially, are really toxic and really fucking problematic. Yeah. Like, the idea that we're somehow better in any fucking way is just, like, an absolute nightmare. Um, but it is such True, a... True, and it's really imperialist. Yeah. Yeah. No, just saying, like, it's also very imperialist to be, like, you know, this is ours, this land is ours, <laughs> like, we're better at 
caring for it, we're better at like knowing what to do. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think in the in bringing it back to the environment, you know, it's related to the United States backing out of the Paris Accords. Not that the Paris Accords went far enough, but the fact that the United States is just like, why would we fucking do this? I think there's such the the American thing is obviously rooted in so much of what the American story is of like individualism and all this shit, but it's really creating quite the fucking nightmare. And I think it's important to understand how on a governmental and societal level, like the people rioting to like go back to work and like all the fucked up shit. It's uh it's really so related to this feeling of invincibility and also like Helen was suggesting earlier, the idea that people are okay with with some people dying, um, because which is eco fascism. Yeah. You know, we as always, we like to end on a positive note. And as we discussed earlier, the issue is capitalism. The only solutions that we will be able to have are fighting the capitalist system. Um, and so, you know. And bringing if CEOs on a nice trip to Central Park. Exactly. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. A nice walk in the park. <laughs> I'm just saying I think we should all go to Central Park with a guillotine and see what happens. Yeah. Right. No, it was just the why Central Park thing. Yeah. That I was it's like what's happening. With. I knew oh, what she was, was the, thinking at. I just the didn't Chris understand. Matthews thing. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, it's from the Chris Matthews thing of when like he was freaking out about Bernie and he was like <laughs> They, they would want me to, to to like get shot in Central Park. And so then it became like a euphemism that Central Park would be the hay. Oh, okay. Got it. It's a euphemism. Got it. I'm like, what are you <laughs> saying here? <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already doing the work uh, of being an anti-capitalist or learning anti-capitalist <laughs> thought. You know, you can always... I'm proud of you. You know, you can you can keep the socialist agenda going by supporting us on Patreon <laughs> um, and also continuing to participate in mutual aid uh, in things like the links we'll have in our description. And yeah, you know, keep keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can... Also, follow us on social media at Season of the Bee on Twitter and Instagram. You can, as Laura said, give us your money on patreon.com slash Season of the Bitch. You can check out our website at seasonofthebee.com. You can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you have thoughts, if you have episode uh, requests or like ideas for guests or anything like that. Um, and rate and review us on iTunes. That helps other people find us. And also, it's fun. And sometimes when I'm sad, I read the reviews and they make me feel better. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's all the things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Love you so much. Love, Love you. you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch. <laughs>